for every cold play, there's 10 other cold plays that all got signed in the same year. You know, yeah, there's a lot of broken dreams in the business. I was nowhere. You know, I had, I'd lost my record deal, massively in debt, and no obvious signs that I would ever be able to recover that, you know, because a career looked to be pretty much finished. We didn't have that such a big launch pad as maybe some of our bands did at the time, but we're still here, so we did something right. You know, I came from Patti Smith, who from day one said, I am an artist. And I would say, we, we are artists, and we make music that we consider to be art. I spent 10 years of my life with no money. Trying to get a record deal was so I was my own boss and I could do what I want. Hits seemed to be my natural comfort zone. There is no formula to having a hit record. It happens and it's probably 60% luck, 30% talent, and 10% timing. I think the idea is to remain yourself, but stay open to being influenced. Hello and welcome to The Art of Longevity. I'm your host, Keith Joplin. Brett Anderson of Suede once said that all successful artists have navigated four career stages. The struggle, the stratospheric rise to the top, the crash to the bottom, and the renaissance. On The Art of Longevity, we talk to artists who spent decades in the music industry and discover what the journey has been like for them and how have they experienced each of Brett's four stages. Along the way, there are some great stories of the ups and downs and the roundabouts of a career in music, insights for fans and aspiring musicians. This is The Art of Longevity. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the renowned British premium audio brand. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode five of season four, in which I speak with Joey Burns of US indie legends, Calexico. Welcome to the Art of Longevity. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Keith. Joey, I've been asking guests if they've been feeling longevitous, and apparently that's not even a word. So I just made it up. <laughs> well, it's, it's a good one to try to achieve making up. Maybe, you, maybe we should try to find one. Is longevous is the correct word, I've been told. So, is it? No. But how are you today? I am so good. I'm happy to be here on tour again after quite a break and to be in Europe where touring can be really comfortable, inspiring, and fun. Congratulations on El Mirador, I have to say. I love it. I think it's up there with your best work. It's album number 13. I mean, how does that sound and feel to you? Everyone's got a different number, my friend, but I'm just happy to have you know, gone through the process of, of opening up to kind of the muse and, and the process of, of writing and recording and, and to get some material that I feel really, really confident and proud to share that with not only John Convertino, the drummer of Calexico, but also Sergio Mendoza, the keyboardist who's been really helping out a lot. And he's very instrumental in this album. I think there's something going on at at the moment, Joey, because there's so many bands that emerged in the 90s, round about the same time, many of which I've had the company of of, on this show. I'm thinking Sea Power, Spoon. I heard the Spoon interview. I love that. Yeah. And, and, you know, they've just made one of their best records as well. Same with Sea Power, same with many others. So 
Maybe the hypothesis here, I wonder if the pandemic is having is had something to do with all this. Perhaps. I mean, it could be cycles. I mean, I know every every now and then there there is a response from album to album, right? And I saw in some of the questions that you had sent over, you know, that was sort of one of the topics. And I and when and listening to your talk with Britt from Spoon, you know, I kind of share a similar uh, direction when it comes to when you make an album and then what do you do next? Do you respond in a in a in a different sort of direction or do you kind of fur- go further down in that direction? And I like what he had to say, which was just he just wanted to be a bit more raw and to be a bit you know under your under your fingers in your hands or rather and kind of like maybe lessen the the connection to computer or samples and stuff like that. You know, I mean, I think when you're when you're putting out music for you know more than a couple of records, then you have a lot of possibilities available. So um, yeah, just kind of checking things out, and you know, part of you know making music is based on your your physical experiences or your your touring experiences. We sh- we certainly meet a lot of people on the road, and you get inspired, and you make collaborations or connections, and then also you know, some of it comes to just like what you hear in passing or, or what you're turned on to. Um, and maybe you want to kind of embrace some of that mood or some of that energy into what you do. So I think you described this as the pandemic highlighted all the ways we need each other. And music happens to be my way of building bridges and encouraging inclusiveness and positivity. I mean, it feels very much like a post-pandemic album. It's um, more buoyant than any of your records from my perspective as a fan you can bop along to a lot of it right so you know just including more presence of rhythm and just having more grooves on this album was really important it was something that my family my wife and my kids were like hey dad you know we really like your music in small amounts uh but you know (laughs) spare us some of the the sad melancholy which (laughs) just give us some good grooves yeah Um, and then also i had some advice from our good friend Camilo Lara, who has a band called Mexican Institute of Sound out of uh, Mexico City. He was on tour with us a number of years ago, and he was sort of impressed on the European audience's reaction to some of the, the cumbias or some of the, the Latin-flavored songs in our set. After the tour, he's like, have you ever thought about making a record just focused solely in that direction, and that style? And I said, I'd be open to it. So. And he is, uh, there's one song called Cumbia del Povo, which is on El Mirador. And he has mixed and sort of produced that, that track, which was a lot of fun. It's true. It's the sort of album you can kind of put on and dance around your kitchen to. So I hope that's going to work in your family. That's going to kind of I think it is. I mean, I'm usually the one who's cleaning up. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm always encouraging a little movement in the kitchen. Well, I'll try it next time I'm cleaning up. See if it sort of speeds up the process. <laughs> yeah, right. But we're talking about this topic of longevity. And, and certainly having a family kind of brings that, that topic right into, into focus. I was telling a friend just earlier that that word longevity, I use it in, in conversation with my, with my family, my parents. I, I tell my dad, I said, you know, the best gift that you've ever given me and, and my sibling and our family is your longevity. And certainly, you know, the role of a family members or being a parent or a father, it sort of changes over time. 
And now I am in that same position that perhaps he was in when he was in his midlife and raising a family. Um, and I think you can kind of draw parallels to having a band and having this musical relationship and friendships, not only with musicians, but all of the technicians or, or the, the crew that travel with you on tour. They're longstanding friendships and, and connections that we've made. And so it is another chapter, another aspect of, of my life. And I know everyone else's lives as well. Yeah, absolutely. And this generation as well, so, you know, our kids' generation has seen this incredible growth in Latin music. I mean, in the streaming era, it's just become absolutely huge. It hasn't necessarily translated into kind of Latin rock. It's more, much more Latin pop, chart pop, yeah. Despacito, etc. But you must have felt the halo of that as well. Have you, have you felt that? I appreciate the acceptance and the openness of audiences for whether it be Latin music or world music or any other kind of music. I think that, you know, in general, I think it's nice to know that audiences are curious, just as we are curious as, as musicians or, or, or fans of different kinds of music. So it's encouraging. Um, I'm not sure if I'm feeling any sort of halo effect. I certainly it's nice to see other artists or other audiences responding to music that I also like. And um, yeah, I'm pretty happy <laughs> about all that. Well, El Mirador translates to window or balcony. And I'm just wondering, is this, am I reading too much into this, but is this a window into the next era of Calexico, which is more celebratory in a sense? I mean, we'll talk about some of your more broody aspects, which I also love. Okay, thanks. You know, I don't, I don't have an answer to that question. You know, I, I mean, as much as I try to look at the calendar or, or think about where I'm going to go next, I really don't know. And I tend to really enjoy the moments of making music or touring when I don't know where I'm going, or that's not part of the thought process. I try to disconnect my thoughts to the music and really just let the music grow by intuition and by its heart. But certainly, I ask those questions a little bit, um, especially now that we've been around for a while, that comes up on occasion. You know, in making El Mirador, I, I felt like perhaps it's best to keep Calexico doing an album at a time that is, is more genre-specific, rather than, say, an album like Feast of Wire, or really a lot of the albums. Uh, but Feast of Wire, Carried to Dust... Uh, even Black Light, there was a bit more, a lot of diversity. And I feel like in hearing some people's responses in the past, that they tend to like things that are tied to the most broadest connection to our band's music. And that's okay, too. I mean, I, I don't get hung up on definitions or what, pe what people like the most one day to the next. But I do I do understand that perhaps it's better to make a story and a theme more focused to a genre of music. Yeah. So yeah. for example, I've got a couple of different scenarios of albums that we could make tomorrow and the next few days. And I'm open to sharing this with you, but you know, there might come something along tonight and then I'll change my mind <laughs> or, yeah. Um, I do. I think as a band, we really do love and thrive on collaborations and so I think that would be really fun to do an album. I'm not sure which genre 
it would be. But, you know, there is the touring aspect of what we do. And I really do love traveling and touring, playing music. There's something really special about it. And I've thought about it in regards to wanting to return to South America or wanting to return to parts of France that we don't normally get to play. So I've thought, well, we could do maybe a, collab- a collaboration. Maybe it's an EP or a couple songs with various artists from those places that could enable us to go and visit and tour, which would be fun. Yeah, and you do collaborations so well. It's been part of your longevity as a band, I guess, as you, you've mentioned. Big time, yeah, for sure. You know, particularly those with Iron and Wine, Nico Case, but then that rolling bandwagon that you tour with and that you've played with over the years, you know, has been so important album to album, especially on, on recent records, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it keeps the fire uh, stoked and it keeps adding freshness to, to the music, not only for the band and crew's sake, but for the audiences too. They really are get turned on to finding out about musicians, whether it be European audiences really enjoying Blind Pilot, who they don't normally get to see, or getting to see Gabby Moreno, who is a Guatemalan singer-songwriter who we've collaborated with. Our guitarist, who is from Spain, Jairo Zavala, has his own project, De Pedro, which is doing fantastic uh, currently in Spain. And he's he's a superstar. And and it's fun to kind of bring people in and to, to have this uh, spirit of, of collaboration really influenced not only the newer material, but some of the older songs as well. Yeah, I mean, music is about bringing people together. I mean, you kind of referred to that quote. One of the things that I've been just saying to the audiences here on tour in Europe is, thank you for for coming out. I realize it's not easy. There's a lot of things going on in the world, both, you know, personally and and collectively as a planet. And it's easy to get... um, inundated and feel like maybe it's best just to kind of sit out a concert or for various reasons. But I think by people coming together, it sends an important energy and signal and expression out into our world and perhaps the universe, which is maybe why we're here in some ways. Totally 100% agree. You know, it's funny because I work on the kind of business side and people ask me these questions all the time, you know, is live coming back. And I describe the the return of live as fragile, but actually I think it's gone way beyond that now. I think people do seem to be flocking back. Okay, with some reservations, as you say. I think Live Nation just posted a record quarter. I th- I, you know, people just wanted always to come together. I think that was a, such an important part of seeing live music was just being there with other people. And people are sort of desperate for it. So it's, these these recent gigs have been joyous. I mean, my biggest problem, Joey, has been getting to them all because of the backlog of rescheduled gigs. Yeah, for sure. And and you know it, it and it hits all of our pocketbooks. And you know maybe there's a way for promoters and venues and artists to and audiences to kind of work together to to make something doable, right? I'd like to see a kind of rolling Latin rock festival. Uh, that's what I'd like to see with with you guys on the bill with with all your friends. <laughs> yeah, for me too. You know, I mean, hey, I'm really happy and, and honored, and I'm always looking for ways to kind of bring people together. And and just last night in Paris, there was a one of the festival directors for a festival 
in, I think, southern France called Tempo Latino. And he brought a really nice card and a bottle of Armagnac for the band and basically just inviting us to play his smaller festival. Um, and we'd love to do it. And I'm sure at some point we will. But uh, I think those things are happening and perhaps in the UK and other parts of the world, it will happen. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers and Wilkins, the premium British audio brand. Bowers and Wilkins loudspeakers are trusted by some of the world's leading recording studios, including Abbey Road. It's a pleasure to have Bowers and Wilkins supporting the show. Talking of collaborations, the one thing that really struck me, I'd love to see Calexico collaborate with Portishead. That'd be great. I mean, it's not that difficult, I don't think, right? I mean, I have Adrian Utley's number. I like Bristol. It'd be fun to go hang out. We did some work with uh, Gold Frap. Okay. About 20 years ago, we did a remix. Uh, I think it's a wonderful idea. They're a fantastic band. Give her a call. <laughs> Inspired by this conversation. And as for Goldfrap, I'm hoping to get Goldfrap on the show very soon. So look, you mentioned Feast of Wire, Joey. That's how I discovered Calexico. I always remember how I um, came across a band which I then grew to love. And in the case of Calexico, it was a recommendation by actually the late and great Robert Sandal, who was a many things, but one of which was the presenter of Radio 3's Late Junction. And he recommended Feast of Wire to me, and he was very specific. He said, you have to listen to it right through three times. And that's the way I recommend, you know, albums that I really want to stick with people now. And he was absolutely right, because there's a sort of sense of epic to many of your albums. I sort of liken them to independent films, you know, where you have to just sit through it and immerse yourself in it. Hard to do these days, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. Well, one of my follow-up questions was like, have you have you thought about that? Because it is difficult. Have, have you changed in any way the way, I mean, you mentioned, you know, more genre-focused uh, albums because Feast of Wire was sprawling, but I loved it because of that. Again, you know, we just kind of, we're not really giving too much thought about that. We're trying to just go in and, and capture something that really feels unique and special and has magic. I mean, there's, there's a lot of subtlety to what we're doing and in the process. And aesthetics are important. The instruments, the location, what's happening in around the world, where we've been, which album we've just made. So what's interesting, um, you know, we made a couple of records with Sam of Iron and Wine. And they're both lovely experiences and both two quite different albums that we made with him. And after we made each record with, with Sam Beam, we did sort of, we made different albums preceding them. In 2006, we made a record called Garden Rune, which was basically more singer-songwriter, a bit more, more singer-songwriter and, I guess, acoustic and folk. A little bit of pop in there. It was one song that was Latin. Uh, with a collaboration with a very good friend, Amparo Sanchez, on the song Roca, Danza de la Muerte. And uh, that was the only Latin sort of groove. And on the last record we made with Sam, we made this record, which is El Mirador. So, um, and that is kind of based on those experiences of making records with Iron and Wine, but also some of the touring experiences, and also just kind of 
having been around for a while, you know, you, you start to step back and evaluate, no, what will be a fun record to make or something to, to approach? Let's see if we can do it. In some ways we did, in some ways we didn't, but, you know, we kind of try to put your best foot forward and, and see what you can get from going into the studio and really just trying to like look for these gems and you're really just pulling them out of, of the air and, and by chance. Uh, for example, there's songs that sometimes I'll go into the main control room where John is seated and set up with an acoustic guitar to rehearse the song that we're going to record. When I'm leaving, I start writing a new idea. And then I hear John saying, oh, that sounds kind of cool. Like, well, let's record that. Idea. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, all sorts of craziness yeah. um, and sort of like, chance elements uh, factor into making a record and sometimes that can influence the whole project the sounds that you blend together there's so much eclecticism there so is it more challenging for you guys to make a record that you feel is distinctive as you say you, you know you occasionally have that conversation garden ruin certainly was and i remember being surprised when i heard it because it felt like you just embedded that eclectic desert noir sound with Feast of Wire, and then you took in another direction. Yeah, I think that's important to do. I think it's important for artists to challenge who they are. And um, another one of your questions was like, do record companies ever come to you and say, where's the hit single, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, we've never signed to a major label, and I don't think I would ever really want to for this project. We were working with City Slang here in Europe, was working with Virgin Labels. And I specifically remember going to Paris for some interviews for the promotion. And one of the one of the people that was working at Virgin Labels was like, Where's the hit song? Where's like a ballad of Kibble Hogue or something that we can play on the radio? And like, I that's not part of my thought process. I just wanted to make some yeah. good songs. And then years later, it turns out that people really enjoyed that whole album. And now we're coming up on 20 years of, of that album. And uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just here to kind of be as honest and sincere, and, but also at the same time have fun with the music and be experimental and still sort of have our integrity uh, woven throughout albums, project to project. And um, so I don't worry about making left turns or, or, or experimenting. Uh, because we're not on a major label. And, and I think that for those audiences uh, that are concerned about adhering to a certain definition, I say, well, you know, give it a try and, or come see us live and see what happens. And certainly there's a risk component. And now maybe that we're experiencing the music business having some big challenges in some ways, both in, in regards to like how you sell your music online or, or sell your records in person or shows. It is, it's hard. It's going to, it's definitely a challenge, but I think I, I didn't start doing this to have any sort of controlled result. It's still sort of a mystery that we're accepted on whatever level we are and listened to and that we're still able to play music. I feel really lucky. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you about that because in a way, with Feast of Wire, were you surprised at how accepted that was? Because it was critically acclaimed. I remember it was on every 
every best of list. And it did seem to bridge you to into a long-term career, making the music that you wouldn't expect. It was still really kind of hard to tell. I mean, 2003 was a really busy touring year, probably our busiest. So I guess on some level, yeah. I mean, we, we saw that the venues were getting a little bit bigger, a few more, a few more people coming out to see the shows, especially in Europe, where we would focus more of our time just because there was more, more offers. But it wasn't like the songs were being played on radio. It's not like the Black Light caught more attention because it was one of the first albums that was being reviewed in certain magazines or newspapers. I think Feast of Wire, it took more time for people to to get to it or listen to it. And, and again, a very small number of people. It's not like it's done exceptionally well. Our band has stayed consistently in a very nice, small pace, I think. And, uh, and again, I'm really grateful for that and especially grateful to have an audience uh, to play to. And as you say, the relationship with the label, you know, you're on a cool indie label and it seems like they know how to handle and market a band that doesn't need hits, which is a kind of a, I think, a great skill in today's business. I could be wrong, but I feel like European audiences and, and perhaps whatever the chains are that people get music, I mean, it's changed a lot. But in the States, it feels like there's more of just a, more of a corporate presence in, in everything in regards to like record stores or just music business. Whereas in Europe, there's a bit more individuality and there's more of an openness for something that is unique and has character and, and is not like everything else. And they're willing to take a chance on an act or an artist that is not you know, being kind of crammed down your throat by a corporate representative. Well, that's interesting that you feel that way. Do you see that as part of your success in Europe? Yeah, I think, I think it is. I mean, I think it all kind of culminates to just there being an appreciation for, for things of, of a certain nature, whether maybe a band like Beirut as well. I mean, sure, there's audiences that love a lot of the mainstream acts as well. But I think just there is, there is a bit of a disconnect for us in North America. There are some people that, that like the music, but maybe appreciate various aspects. Uh, I mean, certain songs will get played on radio stations, or maybe you'll hear it in a grocery store or something. I don't know what that means. <laughs> and it's really hard to tell what anything means in regards to music and the word business. <laughs> yeah, because it just seems yeah, like yeah, things are... Yeah changing rapidly and not really in the favor of, of an artist being able to make a living. Again, I'm really grateful that, that we're here today and I'm talking with you <laughs> and that I have a, a job and, and I have a beautiful venue to play in tonight. I have to say, Joey, it'd be really cool to hear Calexico in a supermarket or in a, in a store. I, mean, I would just be, I don't know, it would just be very, it would just change the experience <laughs> for me entirely. But it'd be good to hear Calexico more on the radio, I have to say. Right. Well, that's cool. I mean, John Peel, I mean, you're talking about England and John Peel was fantastic. I'd been a fan of John Peel. I remember seeing some of the Cure picture disc records with uh, John Peel sessions over in the States growing up. We got to meet him and I really enjoyed that he was just a fan and he didn't care really much about what, what anyone thought. Yeah, and I mean, look at that legacy because of him taking that 
that approach. You know, he's just left this huge legacy of the fact that that's what he did. I mean, fortunately, in the UK, I'm not so sure about the rest of Europe, but certainly here, we've got very much the the aftermath of that is still here, still living and breathing with Six Music and, you know, stations like that, where occasionally, hey, you never know, you might hear a Calexico record, but it's still too rare, really, for um, for my book. I mean, that's cool. You're a journalist. I'm just an artist. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, again, you know, when stuff gets played, it's great, but I'm just happy to get to play music. Keith here. Thanks for listening to The Art of Longevity. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Please tell your friends, listen back to the other episodes, and don't forget to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Back to the conversation. One more thing on Feast of Wire, because as you mentioned, it's um, coming up for a rather important anniversary. Any plans or thoughts about what you could do next year? There's no plans. No. I mean, you know, on one hand, I'll have people tell me like, oh, it's so great that you're not doing a tour where it's you're taking an old album and, and touring it and celebrating it and that you have new material instead of just recycling old material. And at the same time, Feast of Wire really meant a lot to us uh, as a band. And we still really love playing songs that are from that album. And it's nice to, every now and then, like Jason Isbell in the States, he was sort of touting how much he likes that album. Robert Plant uh, has said how much he likes that record and turned Alison Krauss onto it. And that's really nice. I mean, that that was a nice compliment to to receive both of their, their compliments. Um, and that's nice. It's, it's really sweet. I'm certainly hoping for Robert Plant to continue with his newfound uh, career as a radio presenter because his shows are just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, just hearing his interviews and, and him turning people on to, to music that maybe is, is not well known is what it's all about, right? Yeah, it's great. Absolutely fantastic. That's what I'm doing. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly, my ear is, is listening to voices and, and music that call me. And that's what started this whole thing for me personally. You know, I grew up loving all sorts of music. There's music in my house. My, my mom sings and plays piano. My brothers played some garage rock. And, uh, but I was always kind of like, you know, as soon as I heard, you know, sitar music from a Beatles record, then I went out and bought a sitar and I learned how to, you know, kind of get my way around it. But I got to see Ravi Shankar play and uh, Zakir Hussain. I'm not sure if I got to see Ali Akbar Khan, but you know, I just I really love different sounds and expressions. I think hearing more unique music and voices just makes me feel better. I don't know. I mean, it's it's not a political thing. It's just purely a sonic, meditative, medicinal, uplifting thing. And it can be sad, you know. Like I'll, I'll tell you the story, like. We got a card from South by Southwest in the, in the mid-90s when I was with Giant Sand and the friends of Dean Martin. And it was this woman named Kat Egan who worked for Luakabop. And I, I got the card and I was just looking at it and I'm listening to Portuguese fado music, uh, Amalia Rodriguez. And I thought, you know what, I'll just call this number. And she said, oh, you're interested about Portuguese fado? Um, hold on one second. She puts me on hold. And then David Byrne picks up the phone. And we started talking about music and he sent me a bunch of CDs to check out and just borrow basically. And then I sent them back 
And the next thing, he invites John and I to go sit in with one of his artists from Portugal, Paulo Braganza. He had a concert in Brooklyn at St. Anne's Cathedral, and we stayed at his, his place on the top floor. And it was really cool, kind of just following my love of music and it kind of bringing us to new places and new collaborations. And um, again, I think just going by your heart and less by any sort of formula whatsoever. And just really, that's what I tell my kids, just like whatever it is that you love, let's find it and let's embrace it and let's check it out. But let's give it a good try, you know, like really like dive in and don't just give up right away. Cause my kids probably like a lot of people out there think that something comes instantaneously. And I remember that same feeling as a kid sitting at the keyboard and expecting a song just to come immediately. And it, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> funnily, funnily enough. It did come. Yeah. It did come with hanging out with friends and messing around and like riding a, a, your bikes with your friends in a pack. It's the same thing with playing instruments with your friends. And then you kind of like get this thing up off the ground and it's hovering. And maybe it's like it falls down every now and then. But that feeling of lifting or diving or shifting or, or whatever it is or, or just like that movement, that feeling of, of moving air and, and kind of, kind of like really uh, bringing energy to your heart or to your just your being is it's so good. And then to share that with people too, like when we're doing a show, like last night we played in Paris, and we designed the set list with care and with with consideration. And there was a request for this one song called "News About William," and I love that song. And we had it placed in, this, in a part of the set that I just, I knew we couldn't go there. I, I could tell with the crowd, the temperature, the vibe, that was not the time to play that song. And maybe we don't play that song at all, but I don't know. So I just skipped immediately to playing Alone Again Or. So I lead off with the intro. And then for the encore, we, we opened with, we came back with that song, uh, News About William. Because somebody requested it and they, it, the song really meant the world to this family. And I love getting those requests. And that's the one thing I really miss about being on tour at the moment is that I don't have the opportunity to speak with people after a concert. Right. Yeah, I still have to be careful with that. Well, look, hearing you talk about your early influences, I was really fascinated, actually, as to what first attracted you to the whole Tex-Mex ingredients? Well, I think it comes from hearing my parents play music. My mom and dad would go to Acapulco or they would go to Puerto Vallarta for a vacation, just the two of them. My dad was working for a company and he would get like these award points and they, hey, you did a great job. You're going to get a vacation with your wife. Nice. And then we would get a babysitter. So they would come back singing in Spanish. They brought back a song book, which had songs like Celito Lindo and Guadalajara, Guadalajara. And they would sing these songs. So I had this personal connection and experience with my family being moved and inspired and their hearts, you know, kind of like beaming with renewed love or something, you know, and I love that. And then, so just, and then also just having a curious ear when I heard uh, you know, songs from the 60s that have certain threads of music from other parts of the world, my ears perked up. And then I wanted to, I just later, when I heard, say, a bolero from the Trio Los Panchos 
from Mexico. I'm like, oh, what? that's that same vibe and sound that I hear on, um, and I love her from the Beatles. What is that? And then later on, I find out, oh, that's a bolero rhythm. And that's sort of like a certain style. I'm like, oh, I love that. We're going to get more of that. So that's kind of just continued. And I've also sort of found that I love minor blues. And, and it doesn't even have to be a completed one, four, five chord progression of blues. It can just be hanging out on the one and maybe just stay there. And it'd be a drone, say like uh, music from Mali or from Niger, or, you know, I know you had mentioned Tanarawin and, and desert blues, and a connection to desert noir. I think it's a universal thing. It doesn't have to be connected to a desert. It could be Icelandic for, for all I care. There's something that is sort of meditative that comes with a drone and it comes with people just finding a very basic kind of harmony. Yeah. And that locking into a groove in that way as well. But so moving to Tucson, that's where I started hearing more, um, you know, mariachi music. It was in the neighborhood around where I was, was living in Barrio Viejo in downtown Tucson. And it just happened to be at a studio where I got there early and there was a, a youth mariachi group that was warming up finishing their session. And I asked the trumpet players, Rico Pedroza, and um, I can't remember the other guy's name right now, but I was asking them, hey, uh, do you want to come in tomorrow and sit in on a session with us? And they go, yeah, sure. So, I mean, we just kind of like immediately kind of fell into these things. I had been listening to uh, a bunch of Ennio Morricone's music and of course being surrounded by mariachi music, more mariachi than Tejano or Tex-Mex. Um, Tex-Mex is kind of closer to Norteño, and I love Norteño. And there are a couple songs that we've played that have that vibe, but I'm more connected to, say, mariachi and, and since Feast of Wire, more cumbia music. Um, I like Tejano music, but to me, it, it has a different connection to a different tradition. We covered one song called Corona, which is a, a song by the Minutemen, which is a punk rock band from San Pedro. And and I think they were sort of riffing on that kind of Tex-Mex thing. But, and so when we play it, it kind of leans that way. And I get it. But for the most part, our music tends to be more influenced by mariachi, cumbia, and maybe some rancheras. But not so much Tex-Mex. I mean, because Tex-Mex, for me, feels like it comes more from, from Southern Texas. And we're from Southern Arizona. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there is there is Norteño there, and it's cool, but it just I'm just not as into that. And it gets thrown around a bunch, and I, it's easy to write, but it's not accurate. It's interesting to hear you clarify that, really, because you know if you read what people write about Calexico, they just tend to throw the whole lot in, I guess, without really understanding that. That's okay. That background to it, which is, yeah, it is okay. But at the same time, when was there a point where you felt like, okay, I've I've been learning this music, but now I've I've really mastered it because you you kind of have taken that blend on to create something new with it. I love that. I mean, did it strike you that you'd arrived there at at some point? No, and I, I would never consider myself a master of anything other than my own little minor blues shuffle that I do inside my room with my hands and, and my nylon string guitar. And I've, I've certainly rewritten quite a few songs, it feels like. 
And um, one of the reasons I called this song on the new record Constellations, because it feels like we have these songs that come from, like, you know, that song Quattro, World Drifts In. It is a similar vibe or style, and I feel like I've written enough of those songs, and now I need to kind of go away from that constellation a little bit. It's one of my favorites uh, on El Mirador, actually. I love it too. And funnily enough, for all that, uh, we, as we talked about being a, a more buoyant record, it, it's still the quieter, moodier tracks on there that I, I'm attached to yeah. for some reason. I mean, maybe that's just the melancholy aspect of it. I like that too. And, you know, for setting out to make a record that was really focused on just more the the Latin influences, especially as performed and felt on our concerts, we did not do a really good job of following through. So, but that is kind of, that's who we are. And, and I'm sure when you talk to other artists too, at a certain point, you just kind of give your, you got to give yourself a break and you got to cut yourself some slack. Um, you can only beat yourself up too many times. And a lot of the responsibility of finishing a song comes down to me writing lyrics and delivering a good vocal. And if it doesn't happen, then that song idea we had this really great English beat sounding song that we were calling Metro. It just didn't get finished. And, um, and I really wanted to finish it cause I had so much fun. Right. I wrote it on the electric bass. Um, and it just, it's going to stay unfinished. And well, it's, I mean, it's never wasted. It's always there. If you need to dial it back up and finish it off, you can do it. That's the great thing about having songs in your canon. You know, it's like, it's always I was there. thinking about sending it to Dave Wakeling of the English beat. Right. <laughs> I mean, why not? Or I actually, I even mentioned it to Sam Beam. I, I talked to him about a couple of weeks ago before the tour to say thank you for playing on the record. And I wanted to send him some wine, but he said, that's okay. I got enough wine. But talking was, was enough of a, of a gift. But I said, I could send you this song idea. I mean, you probably would sound killer with your vocal on it, you know? Because I know he's a fan of the English yeah, beat yeah, as absolutely. well. But, uh, I never felt like I've mastered anything. I felt really lucky to get to play with fantastic musicians and the world's best drummer, incredible rhythm section, trumpet players that are amazing. Even when they're warming up, they sound so good and they're so much fun to be with. Absolutely. It's one of the real pleasures of seeing Calexico live is just seeing the instrumentation coming together. It's an investment, my friend. Absolutely. It's an investment of 30 years, <laughs> almost. Isn't yeah. it? Well, more than It's been now. a good run. I hope it can keep it up. But to be honest, I'm not sure. But we're just going to see what happens. The Art of Longevity is a team effort. The show is produced by the Song Sommelier, that's me, with Project Melody. It's audio engineered and edited by Audio Culture. Our amazing cover art is by the wonderful Mick Clark. And original music for the show is by Andrew James Johnson. I know we don't have too much time left, Joey. I've got a couple more questions. You mentioned Desert Noir. I just want to maybe finish up on the, the genre conversation there because I, it's a kind of a characteristic of bands of longevity. Many of them have invented a subgenre. Desert Noir is the one that's been associated with Calexico. How, what do you think about when those badges are created? Do you think it kind of nails it? Or are you happy with that description? Or do you think, oh, that's just way too simplistic for what we do? I would have to thank Fred Mills, who is a fantastic writer. He's an incredible journalist and writer and friend of a lot of the Tucson bands. 
And he came up with that term. I remember going to Zia Records in Tucson and talking to him on occasion. And he had just gotten a copy, an advanced copy of the Black Light. And he was kind of tossing this, this term around. I think, and I said, you know, I think that's fantastic. And it's, that is my favorite definition of the band, just because it's, it's beautiful. It says everything in two words. So good, well done, Fred. <laughs> I mean, that's, the, that's what every writer should do, is boil it down to the essence. And that's fantastic. Right. It's a pretty cool subgenre to have invented, I have to say. It's, you know, it's not a bad one. Yeah, I think he did a great job, and I'm glad to be a part of... I think there's a lot of bands and artists that have been doing similar stuff for a very long time. And I think it's just timing, you know? I mean, we came at a time kind of after things were very loud, and um, we had been involved with the Friends of Dean Martin, which had changed their name to the Friends of Dean Martinez. So there was a bit of a lounge movement. And I think that kind of opened the door, I think, to some people, whether it was journalists or audiences, for some music to come in that was a bit more left of center and had a bit of a story and some character rooted to a place yet felt timeless. And I'm just still really grateful to be able to do that. Joey, can we um, stop off at just a few songs? Yeah, let's do it. So one of my favorites, if not my favorite, from the new album, El Mirador, is Then You Might See. It's sort of um, different from the rest of the album in that it is, it's, it's got a sort of sense of menace to it in a way. It's got that nagging guitar riff and um, it doesn't conform to the, the, you know, the more joyous nature of the rest of the record. But just tell me about it. It's, it's almost Bond theme-ish for, for me. Right, and just a bit of twang guitar. I mean, you know, Sergio Mendoza came up with some of these chords and I can't speak volumes enough about Sergio and John and all the band, but Sergio, you know, he built this home studio within six months, you know, during the pandemic, just so we'd have a place to record or he would have a place to also continue to work. But it really made this album possible. Without him, I wouldn't be here right now talking with you. So that idea I thought was great. And I thought, you know what? Sure. It sort of has like this French sixties vibe to it just because of the, this, tempo of the strumming of the a minor chord and the way he's bringing in different chords is slightly different than how i would do it and i love that without really thinking about what the song is or is going to be or could be i just started putting down some some fun twang guitar parts and i put several of them on with my fender jazz master and maybe a telly and then i had some lyrics from our good friend pieta brown who's a fabulous singer songwriter and the lyrics just kind of fit. I, I, I was sitting with them and I thought, I could, I could make this work for this song. And I love the lyrics and I love her writing and it's a beautiful collaboration. So, And we all just really loved it. I mean, if I had a chance to go back and maybe do one more take where I just slow the tempo down a hair and just have it be in the pocket, I would. But I kind of like the urgency of the feel too. And we tend to really love first or second takes. Uh, of, a, of an idea. The menace, I think, is just because of um, that twang guitar. Yeah. yeah just, yeah. it really kind of takes over. And there's some beautiful synths in there that are very subtle. I'm glad you chose that track. It's one of my favorite songs to play live. And I asked Sergio what was his favorite song to play live. And that was one of his. Oh, we've cool. taken the outro and we've extended it for an indefinite number of bars just to kind of have mayhem and chaos. Ah, so that's on your set list for the tour right now. 
Oh, it's one of my favorite moments. That's it. That's new. I'm coming to the forum. I want to hear that. <laughs> I want to hear that. I'll gladly put you on the list, my friend. All right. So thank you. Well, that's great to hear you say that. And it, yeah, it comes together, uh, I think, with just beautiful results. Okay. My second choice is maybe on Monday, back from the Algiers days, right? Yeah. So I bought the CD single and very occasionally, it doesn't happen very often, but there's a demo version that I just think is way better than the finished version. And the demo version of that song is beautiful. Can you remember that recording? What can you tell me about it? I don't remember the recording. <laughs> we were talking about this earlier and I still don't remember. And I asked somebody if they could find it on Spotify or if the label could send it to me, but it must be just a bit more minimal. And perhaps there was, I mean, you know, it's fun to have different versions represented of a song. And sometimes, <clears throat> and a song like that in particular, um, it can sound better and, and the meaning of the song can have more clarity if it doesn't have as much instrumentation and arrangement. Well, that's it. That's it exactly. So you mentioned you're a fan of the minor blues, and that's the thing. So that version is very bluesy, very atmospheric, and therefore, because of the lyrics as well, very noirish. Yeah. I'm glad you liked that one. We played that song a lot on that tour and, and after. It's just a, it's one of those groups, too, that just feels really good to play live on stage. And we have a song on this new album, El Mirador, that we've taken a similar approach to, where we've taken the song Rancho Azul, which is a full band song. It was a bit of a work. Uh, I think we worked on that song the most, it feels like, in some ways. So at a certain point, I, th I thought, hey, why don't we try Rancho Azul as just an acoustic solo or duet with just uh, Brian Lopez, our, our guitar player, uh, from Tucson, who's also an amazingly talented musician and friend. So we kind of have this quieter moment where we do that. And as soon as we did it, all of the crew and our friends were like, that's the version. That is the best version of that song. It matches the story. It matches the lyrics and the tone and the mood. And I love finding that. We also did that with the song Bisbee Blue. I, I wound up doing it just solo on tour for Garden Ruin, and it felt really good. Well, Joey, we're almost there. I just want to say, well, let me just ask you first, what do you think is next? You've mentioned you don't tend to think too much about too far ahead, but you've also mentioned you've got a couple of ideas of, of albums where you'd like to, you know, to go next. I mean, what, what's your sense of you know, the next year or two for Calexico? Well, I'd just like to be able to put out music and mainly focus more on collaborations with younger artists and have fun doing that and then see what people respond to and then if people like one of the songs and maybe we see about going on tour with them or you know instead of taking a seven-piece band maybe we take a three or four-piece band with some with some guests and that way it's something different and unique and we can play some different venues to different audiences um i'd love to tour more in the states it would be fantastic to build more of an audience there and i'd love to tour more in the uk um and, and doing similar kind of collaborations with local artists there. So, yeah, something like that would be cool. Well, it's always good to have you over in Europe. I hope we're looking after you when you're here. And I'm absolutely looking forward to seeing you at the show. I'll, I'll pop along. Yeah, please do. And um, again, uh, the, the invitation stands. So, And it's really great getting to talk with you. You're really doing a great job. And I love the podcast. I love the interview with Britt. That was the one I heard. And 
And I really appreciate, you know, people like you doing what you're doing. It really kind of helps give artists like ourselves an inside look. Yeah, thank you. No, we're gradually building the story of longevity to which there is no precise formula that won't surprise anybody. But I mean, there are some secrets coming out for sure. Some some real sort of revelations. Let's call them revelations. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, perhaps there's some younger audiences that are listening to your show or that find a way in for whatever reason. I mean, an artist like ours or a band like ours, I think it can easily be sort of... Um, pinpointed or, or sort of uh, connected maybe too closely to a Southwestern description or definition or region. I've often thought, well, we'll just keep the name Calexico connected to that, and then we'll just call ourselves something else or whatever, and do a, an ambient record or do a jazz record. I mean, we've done those things, and we've called it Calexico. We've put out our own albums uh, and sold only at shows. But certainly, you know, John is more interested in doing stuff that uh, that is just more traditional in using the kit. I mean, he's a huge fan of, of jazz drummers, and, and I love doing that stuff too. But I think maybe if we sort of just separate some of these these musical themes and directions and genres, maybe it'll make it easier for, for audiences to kind of connect to those aspects. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it, it's really well said. And I think, you know, most young bands, they might appreciate that, you know, that created a band or a career for themselves. It doesn't have to be that one thing. You know, at some point they will branch out, they'll seek collaborations or be inspired to do something else, which they can give another name or yeah. whatever. That can be part of longevity. But most young bands that I meet and speak to want what you have, actually. They don't, they don't necessarily want the hits and the fame and the fortune. What they want is they want to be able to make a living from making music that they love for a long time. And if they can get a career out of it, that would be the end goal. Yeah, me too. And it's interesting to see what other artists do. Like when I was visiting Mexico City, uh, when we were making Edge of the Sun, we visited some local musicians and they're all busy like making music for commercials or or just writing music to give to whomever for whatever. They're busy. I would like to get a little better at <laughs> uh, my my ability to get stuff done at home. And uh, but I'm I'm really grateful for all the things that we do and I have to balance it with family too, which is the most important. My kids and family are are the most important thing and it's very challenging to be away. So I try to maximize my time when I'm on the road to make sure that I, uh, that I do everything that I can. Absolutely. Well, Joey, thanks for coming on. It's such a pleasure. Thank you, Keith. Great job. Good luck with the show tonight. And yeah, I'll see you very soon. Okay. All the best. See you later. See you, Joey. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.